Welcome to the Change Africa podcast, where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and top leaders leading Africa's transformation. I'm your host, Isaac Kojodeno Abwa, and together with my co-host, Daniel Merki, we'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, the Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. My guest on the Change Africa podcast today is the founder of one of the most exciting new places to visit in Accra, Ghana. This visionary educational nonprofit is dedicated to training Africa's next creative leaders. From walking the streets of New York, carrying bags of books with a vision of coming back to Ghana to set up a small space where African creatives, filmmakers, and photographers can breathe, can think, can produce their work that will lead the continent to telling a story by itself for the rest of the world. Paul is back from his graduate education at the International Center of Photography in New York, where he was the recipient of the Director's Fellowship and the George Moore's Merit Scholarship to lead his dream. Help me welcome Paul Nelson, the founder and executive director of Dekine to the Change Africa podcast. Paul, you're welcome. So I want to start from your storytelling journey. Where did the whole passion to tell stories really start from? I mean, as far as Paul is concerned, is it a childhood inspiration? Is it your background? Is your upbringing? Where really is that motivation coming from? Um, my grandparents were traditional rulers, so you can sense that, you know, um, oral history is our bed and core. Uh, in Africa, especially in Ghana. So that is my entry to storytelling. So they used to tell me stories when I was a kid. I come from Kumbawu in, in the Asante uh, Kingdom. So basically they were passing on stories and history from generation to generation. And I was privileged to be, you know, one of their grandkids who they used to share stories. So growing up, those embedment of those stories were something I was always looking forward to visualize it or to tell the story of my community, my home, and my tradition. Interesting. And so why then, for example, didn't you become a linguist? Um, why didn't you become maybe follow that lineage? Why particular visual and photography and the storytelling or visualizing what you had seen? Because we're going to get eventually to it, because I know that part of your work has also really centered around trying to hone on Africa's tradition and rulership. But why did you focus on photography? I'm a visual person. Funny enough, um, that was what I was drawn to. Um, I study learn faster through visuals. And so that stories my grandparents told me, I wanted to see them. Right. So that was the 
entry to photography. So I remember when we were kids, we went to my aunt's house and they were showing National Geographic um, um, documentaries of under their wildlife and all that. So looking back, I think those things were my sources and influence. So I always wanted to see them. I always wanted to visualize the things I've been told, the things I've experienced. And that is why I took the path of visual. I used to draw. Funny enough, people don't know. I used to draw a lot. But the drawing was so much of me pouring out my imagination and also the things I've copied. But I think when I found photography in university, I felt that that was the medium I want to go with. Like you were saying, you found photography in university. Do you remember your first camera you bought, for example? And what, what were the first striking images that you took? Huh, man, you want to tell? You want me to tell the story? So I, I was in Kumasi, and you know my friend who used to who studied abroad came back and with a camera, right? And that was my first entry to what he was taking pictures of girls, but you know, and I was like, yo, we could we can do more beyond that. So I started reading about photography, researching about photography, you know, looking out for photographers. So I used to go to um, KUST, if I don't know if you know KUST, the engineering, they have Rodolfo Cafe, and I'll go sit there all day researching about photography and all that. So I had been planning at that time, I had my own company, but, you know, I was doing textiles, I studied textiles in school, and it wasn't something I truly wanted to do. And so it wasn't fulfilling enough so I was saving to buy a camera and I wasn't getting there. And I had an iPhone, so I sold the iPhone and bought a Yam, you know Yam, right? And then sent the money to somebody in Bronx who kindly happens to work at Tony Blair Institute. And the person bought the camera. So I met the person at Vida uh, Cafe, oh no, um, Cafe Point at the airport. And when I got the camera, I was with that particular friend, that was one of my happiest days in my life. We walked all the way from airport to Usu, taking pictures, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> taking pictures. At that time, you know, it was all like, you know, I want to be a documentary photographer. I want to be a photojournalist, you know, and just taking random pictures and opening it on the laptop. That time, my laptop was a desktop, you know, that desktop, like, yeah. you know, yeah. a few, you know, unless... You plot it and wait for it to, to charge. So, <laughs> and those, yeah, so those images were some of my proudest images I've made in my life, and I still have them. And then, you know, that day I immediately went back in the night to, to Kumasi, taking pictures, you know, my dream. I want to be the photographer, you know, um, you know, my dream, you know, but I didn't know the, the hurdles, you know, to get to that level, you know, in Ghana, right? So... Um, yeah, so that was my first camera. It was Canon T3. I actually sold it to somebody um, when I wanted to buy a big, a better camera. And actually, I'm trying to buy yeah. it for the. So they can put it in the kinds um, collection. Yes, I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So coming from that background, very passionate about self-learning yourself. Who are the people that you are looking to globally um, to be an inspiration? Or who were doing something like that, that you thought, okay, this person is doing something like that and I wanted to replicate it for African stories. So my background and my story has always been when I face hurdles, 
and challenges, I convert them to something positive. You know, when I got my camera, I was like, you know, I was assisting my friend as a photographer, but he was an advertising photographer. So it wasn't something I was enjoying. But the people who were doing photogenism and documentary, I tried to reach out to them and none of them kind of wanted to help me. So I started looking out, you know, so I'll go to Vodafone Cafe. So I was studying photographs. Sometimes some people like, I literally, it's like five years ago. The story, these stories are just five years ago. But the point is that before I bought the camera, I was studying photography like a master's program. I was disciplined. I'll go to Vodafone Cafe every single day and I will study from morning to evening, right? Uh, watch tutorials, you know. So when I picked the camera, I was already, I had all these knowledge already, right? So that was the beginning of my photography. And then I was looking to National Geographic a lot. So if you come to our library, we have National Geographic books from 1952 till now. I'm a huge fan of National Geographic. Happy that wow. today they are part of us, Monsters, uh, our partners now. And that was my way into it. And I really wanted to be a National Geographic photographer, you know, because all the pictures that were taken were foreigners. Not lo any look I didn't see at that time. I never saw any picture uh, being taken by an African. So I wanted to challenge that. I wanted to be that person to tell our own stories, right? So that was my kind of like in people I was looking up to. I didn't have particular person. But I was looking up to, I think, more of National Geographic photographers. And at the time, how were you trying to break into the global scene? Because eventually, you went to New York to study. How did that happen? Having your pseudo masters at the cafe every single day. How did that transition into getting a global education, actually, from a renowned photography institution? I wasn't trying to get into the global scene, right? I was just trying to survive. Sometimes people get the idea that, you know, um, you, when you become a photographer, instantly you're working for New York Times, National Geographic. No, I was just trying to survive. I was just trying to make an ends meet. That's why I moved to Accra, right? But my point is that with me, I read a lot. I read so much. Like every year, currently I'm doing 62 books a year. I read so much, you know, so it's a habit I, copy, I, I got from my dad. So I was reading a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. Yeah, I've and read that. Great book. Yes. Great book. I've read it like seven times. And that book made me understand that there was Nanako Fiakwa, Bob Pixel, Francisco Coco, all these people established already. And for me, it's like to be noticed, I cannot go and compete with them at the same level. So what I did was that I saved money, then left for Kenya. So went to do stories in Kenya. So when I came back and I started sharing my work, you know, AID, it, also, the idea was that as soon as you do the story, New York Times will publish your work. No, <laughs> it doesn't happen. So it was a false narrative. And also that brings me to my point of building the can. Because when you listen to the foreigners, you listen to the West Side, they have an ecosystem and a system that works. It doesn't not work yet. We don't have a New York Times. We don't have a National Geographic. We don't have a Washington Post. So you have to create your own and how it will work. So for me, that was my, my thing. So when I came back, I shared my work and people found out my work and that was the way out and people started hiring me and then I was looking for opportunity to study and to learn in our local context, which I didn't get. So I was like, you know what? 
I'm tired of trying to reach out to everybody and nobody was responding, but the foreigners were responding. The foreigners were responding and helping me. Like, hey, apply for this school. Hey, apply for this. So I literally applied for four schools and I got in. And then it then came down to money and the scholarship. And that's my way out to go study on the other side. So let's 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 talk about let's talk about Kenya, right? What what was so intriguing about Kenya? Because this is also part of your story. You were just looking for indigenous African stories, stories that have not been covered, most importantly. So what struck you about Kenya for you to go and what was your experience there like? How, how, how long did you stay there? And what kind of photography, what kind of story also were you trying to tell by going there? So, I mean, again, I always see myself as an African, right? I think it's a bigger context of being an African than the local context of being a Ghanaian. So I wanted to talk, tell the African story. So when I was in Kenya, I stayed there for, I think, three weeks. And I did stories I have researched about. One of them was village with no men going to Masamara and, um, and, and all that. So for me, those stories were stories of Africa, not just stories of Ghana, because I think most people were so contextualized on what Ghana, you know, tourism, blah, blah, blah. But for me, I was like, you know, let's tell the bigger um, story of who we are as Africans. And really, that was your genesis or part of the genesis of what became Dikan, which is what you're working right now. In that bigger picture of where you were working, how did you visualize the future of what would become Dikai? What were you thinking about? What was your inspiration? What was your motivation? Why did you want to build a photo library? So basically, a part of um, question, right now, Dikan is a, a visual education institution. We're no more a library. We've moved past that. We evolved now. We are, we are past that. Yeah, we are an institution, you know. And what was the key? Dikan is for the younger self of Poninson of six years ago. The Poninson who never had an opportunity where there were so many gatekeepers, who never had a place to go, who never had a place to exhibit um, 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 his work, who never had a place to uh, uh, go for workshops, right? So that was the the decanus of the Poninson of two, um, six years ago. I am a non-conformer. Things that piss me off, I'll solve the problem, right? I hate gatekeepers, you know? So for me, I was like, let's break that barrier of one man band who is the gateway to photography in Ghana and in Africa. I was like, you know, let's grab that. I'm gonna build a place where it's accessible to everybody, right? So when I went to US and I got the best education in photography and filmmaking, I was like, you know, I took 42 courses actually, and because I was dabbing into everything, archiving, museum management, gallery, uh, I was dabbling into everything. I never specialized. Anybody who says I did specialize, no, because for me it was like, I'm, I'm picking these education to come back to build here. So there's no point in specializing in one thing. So that was my, and again, I say this, being privileged is not a crime. It's how you use your privilege. Because majority of the people have been privileged in many ways, but their privilege never trickled down to the younger best person over here. So when I was in school, I realized that the archives, the stories of Africa are on the other side. U.S. is crazy how U.S. institutions have so many African studies more than Africa. It's like, what do you mean? Everybody's going there to study African studies. What? Yeah. 
So for me, that was my concept that let's build our own institution. My first course I took in my school was American history. What am I doing with it? So for me, it's like, why don't we learn about Kwame Nkrumah, short pictures and stories about Kwame Nkrumah, Busia, that all those histories, Independence Day, right? Which are not in our curriculum. So for me, that's the reason why I came back to build this, that this could be accessible to a young person who is 10 years old, five years old, 60 years old, could be proud and be able to have the access to our own history and our own heritage. Okay. And so you said it's for the Paul Ninson six years ago. So when I think that about that, you, you learned of the internet and eventually you got your education abroad as well. But in terms of the curriculum, is there, is there an African curriculum or a curriculum that is tailored towards the needs yeah, of our society? And how do you that incorporate that in the curriculum? So our curriculum is based on that, 100%. We're not using the foreign curriculum here. The foreign curriculum is the, is the technical aspect, but the curriculum we study here. So here in Dikan, we have two educational paths, actually three. We have a full-time program, which is going to be announced very soon, first to hear that. We have workshops, and then we have teen academy, which is for kids from eight. 10 to 18. Then we have the workshops where anybody can take the workshop. Then we have the full-time program. The first course you learn at Deccan is the visual history of Africa. That's the first course here at Deccan. Then the rest of it at... So that's kind of re re replacing your American history experience with an African context so that Instead of going to learn exactly. American history, you come and learn exactly. visual history. Exactly. Why would I want to learn about America when in my own context here is not? Already we're coming from colonialism. Our curriculum here, majority of them do not solve the problems of Ghana. Let's go back. Who built this curriculum? You're studying religious and moral education, right? Yes, they do that in Ghanaian schools. Okay. The religious and the, the, there's a part which is traditional. There's a, 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 a topic called witchcraft. Please, I'll challenge you. Go read that. Features of a witch. A woman who likes meat. A woman who's black. I studied that. Interesting. Who built that? <laughs> that curriculum. <laughs> You get the point. So these are some of the things we need to clear. We're coming yeah. from that background. And if you continue that context, there will never be any way to solve a problem here. So for me, even in that, on top of it, we're teaching critical thinking, design thinking, leadership, ethics. Because my brother, the biggest problem of Ghana is ethics. <laughs> so I don't want to train photographers and filmmakers and writers here again in Ghana where there's no simple ethics. People don't even know even how to comport themselves. Someone takes a wedding gig. Say, I'll deliver the pictures in one month, three months. The, the bride has not gotten the pictures. He said, I'll show up at 5 p.m. Again, the photographer never shows up. So how do we train again? Journalism. Who holds the government accountable? Who holds the people in power accountable? Now we're talking about climate change, right? Who's taking the pictures and doing the stories of the Galamsee? Let's visualize that. 
till we visualize it, nobody will see the extent and the damage of it. So that is what I'm bringing on board. That is what I'm building the can for. I, I really like that you broke the intersection of it. And again, if you are hearing this for the first time, we know that Dikai is having a full-time program that is coming. That's very exciting. We're speaking to Danny Nama recently, the producer of Beast of No Nation. And he said what he's realized, and I think there's a lot of intercession what you're trying to do, um, what Dikai is trying to do, and what he is trying to do with Idris Elba and other people. He said that one of the biggest problems that he's seen here is that education for photography and filmmaking starts at a very late stage. For example, it will have to take up one instant to go to Vodafone Cafe to go and self-study and generate that interest. If you are in primary school here, there's almost no school. I could almost authoritatively say there's almost no public institution from your primary education to your secondary education that studies photography. And that is quite problematic. And so people have to go to a university before they can hold a camera. And that access really means that for a very long time, while in the global competitive landscape, while kids somewhere in the world are learning to produce films and plays while they are teens, we have to wait till perhaps we are their 20s, mid-20s, even late 20s, before we can start that journey. And, and I like that program around like trying to infuse that into kids. And so I would like to hear more about that kids program and how you're trying to bring that access to education and photography and filmmaking to a very young audience than has previously been done in Ghana and across the continent. So see, um, I think even with that, right, let's start from the basics. I, I always love to challenge people. Did you ever see Kwame Nkrumah's pictures in your syllabus when growing up? No, I didn't. Okay. He didn't study a Ghanaian curriculum, but I didn't. Exactly. That's the point. That's where photography starts for. Let's use our heritage, our archive in the classroom. That is where the interest comes from. If you start from there, kids would not be interested much in the Kunkumbajas. Everybody want to watch Hollywood, right? And the Bollywoods. Why? Because... You're introducing something, people do not understand how the brain works. The brain is a copying machine. What you show that kid at the age of 10 is what he would love to do at the age of 20 and 30, right? Why don't we have these things on our national television? That is where the interest comes from. My sources and influence started when I watched National Geographic. You see, at the age of 15, at the age of 30, 15 years later, that story I watched in National Geographic became my sources and influence. Now, I'm on a path to be a scuba diver. Why? Because when I was a kid, I saw them with cameras under water, looking at whales, and that has become my influence. So today, let's go back. Our national television, our curriculums, let's incorporate the stories. Right now, we have a current exhibition on freedom and justice. With these are archives with lives in Ghana. Why don't we make them accessible? And why don't we add them to the curriculums? Don't talk about cameras now, because at that level it's very high. But even in the curriculum, make these things accessible. The book publications you're publishing, make these things accessible to them. And that is where we can have that conversation. Because don't throw something on kids and expect them to be different. You look at American movie, Hollywood, in that sense, it's also a propaganda. 
It's incense. It's also education. The Americanism. Yes, American is the greatest nation on that. If you watch American movies, war movies, always the bad guy is a Russian. The bad guy is always Russian. <laughs> always the bad guys are Russian. You see what they are doing? So the young people will start. Say, like, hey, I want to be a, a, a special forces. I want to be in the U.S. Army to go and fight the war of America, the greatest nation on earth. Make America great again. It started at a younger age. When I went to U.S., I saw more American flags than any country I've ever been. Here we see a, a Ghana flag in Flagstaff House. Only on Independence Day. And then, oh no, on Independence Day. So you don't expect the kid who grew up in Accra and the kid who grew up in New York would be the same. Again, you're talking about age. Look, the banger of entry, even for Paul Ninsen, six years ago, where there's no system in the community to learn these things. So even now, again, on your podcast, I want to make an announcement. We're going to be, we're going to start a workshop with Canon in July for kids at the age of 10 to 20. Excellent. Excellent. We're going to pick 25 kids, bring them here for six months, provide them all the resources, free cameras, or they have access to our digital lab. They have access to their library for six months. We're going to talk about climate change. We're going to talk about uh, SGDs, all that for six months. That kid, at the end of the day, has to produce a documentary uh, or uh, pictures for exhibition. I'm changing every year. If I do 25 kids every year, the next 10 years, where would these kids be? Train the trainers to go and train the, the others. So for me, these are some of the little things we're doing in our capacity. And again, every time I say this, decan in our local dialect means take the lead. I want people to take the lead in solving these problems. Ponensen is not the only one who can solve Ghana's problem. Other people can do it in their small way and get it up. So that's what we're doing. So let's talk about decan very well. I mean, the institution, um, we're going to have a drawback into other things like your meeting with Brandon, but the institution itself, uh, what is it divided into? Not just the learning pathways. So we have a photo library. What other things we have? We have the um, we have the exhibition space. What? Well, when you come to the kind, what is the full nomenclature looking like right now? So I'm building an ecosystem, right? And people are not paying much attention to it. I like that. I like to build things like Apple, building the secret and bring it up. So we have a library, which is the only photo library in Africa. The library is divided into two. We have all black collection, which comprises of African-American and African books. Then we have the global collection, right? Then we have the gallery. So the library is educational resources. The gallery is a distribution and display outlet for any photographer in Ghana. Then we have the story lab, which is storytelling and innovation. I came up with that. So the storytelling innovation is like, how do we use 360 cameras to tell stories? How do we use the VR and the ARs to tell stories? Why photographers cannot code? Why filmmakers cannot code? Why filmmakers cannot edit their own work? So we're training all these people in the system. We have the compound, two big compound. We have the movie screening where photo filmmakers can display their works, bring community together. Then we have the community event as well. Then we have a full flesh educational programs as well. Then we have the studio. We have our production room, which prints the pictures and all that. So this is what we have currently. And then we evolve little by little and expand to something big. 
So this ecosystem, and again, I can see the connections now, but would you clarify to us, when it all comes together, what does it build? <laughs> when all these, these guys pieces come together, what does it build? Um, we have a five-year and ten-year development plan, right? We want to be an institution and a community center. That is the pathway. An institution, educational institution, and a community center. So we're little by little building that together. When we get there, with the help of the board and with the help of our team, we'll decide the pathway where we'll go with each part and the moving part of it. So again, we have our... Oh, I, love, I, love, I love that. So we have our building we want to build, which will be a six-story building, which will have everything of the vision inside. So today, now, I'll just keep it like that. <laughs> I love the community-orientedness because we are very much interested in arts on this podcast. We've had historians on the podcast. We've had filmmakers. We have uh, artists. We have a lot of people who come to podcast. And it's always the gatekeeping, right? And it's always because art is always taken from the community, where, in fact, which is where it starts. Art is taken from the communities and it's kept in the archives and it's kept in the institution. And when I mean the institution, I mean the gatekeeper, the, the gate kept institution that doesn't allow the ordinary person to access it. So I like the idea of community because then it reopens the community to indulge with the art, which they were part of creation. Because, for example, these exhibitions that you're talking about, like I came to see the exhibition around the the Asante uh, celebration, I think. Uh, Ahine, yeah. So the Ahine exhibition is really a people's exhibition. It's people who come together and the photographer is just the visual lens perspective that is given to the celebration that already exists. And yet, it would be kept in spaces which are not always available for the same people to enjoy. So I think community is a huge thing, and I'll be happy to see in the future how that evolves and gets the, the ordinary person excited about art. Because if you go out, and we have had the privilege to travel to a couple of places, if you go out to cities, for example, landing... If you go to places like Singapore, art is embedded in the community. Based the corridors outside, it is a theater. People can come out and do that, right? And the the culture accepts that people experiment in different forms of art and use the environment as an art form. And here, unfortunately, even when the environment is an art form, and it becomes art, then it has to be protected. Then it has to be gathered up from the community. So again, this is just me being passionate about something I'm happy to see a change in. But let's take a drawback on a stand you want to. Yeah, I mean, maybe to add to that, because I can see what you're saying with the art and everything, where you're coming from. But I also realized you mentioned problem solving, and I can see there is like, yeah, there is the art component, there is the visual storytelling, but there is a very, like, there's a pragmatic part of you seeing how this aids, I think, to probably solve problems beyond just the category or the field or the industry you're in by kind of, um, yeah, sharing the stories, having uh, an understanding. So maybe if you can elaborate a bit on that beyond the art into the problem-solving nature, and how you see that this can also aid in problem solving, uh, critical thinking, development, kind of. Yeah. 
So there's two sides every time when I'm building the calendar strategy, I have this in mind. One, how do we use visuals to solve problems in Africa? How do we use visuals to help people solve problems in Africa? The can is not the, the demigod of all, pop, all solutions, right? But if we can train 100 photographers or filmmakers in a year, those people will do those most important stories, right? And those stories will come back to solve problems in its own way in the community. One problem we can we try to solve is job. And according to the report um, we've read recently, it said 2030, the creative economy of Africa will be 13 billion US dollars. 13 billion. What is the size of the creative economy even in Nigeria? Huge. When you do that, what do you do? You're creating jobs for people. The problem of job it's like, uh, uh, unemployment is a huge problem here. So when you do that, photographers and filmmakers are some of the richest people. Bro, if everyone, if you get a wedding gig and you are being paid $3,000, just a weekend of a wedding gig, that is more than somebody's salary a month. So sometimes people neglect that part. And again, you talk about critical thinking, we're talking about problem solving, even the students you're teaching or you dispensing these knowledge into. They themselves can go ahead and solve problems which you yourself are not aware of in their community. So for me, these are some of the things we're doing in a sense as an institution, in a sense of teaching people as well in this. Yeah, so now let's go back to your journey to school and meeting Brandon, who also is a, a huge part of the story. You brought Brandon to Ghana at the opening of Dikai to be part of the celebration. So how did that all happen? How did you get to meet Brandon, if you could tell the story? I met Brandon on Legon campus. And again, when preparation meets opportunity, and every time I tell young people, I want to be like you, I said, please, you don't. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't know the things I do behind the scenes to get to where I get. But if you are willing, I can show you. For six years now, I've never played a video game or a simple game on my phone because I wanted to be disciplined. Because that game, I can be reading. That game, I could be watching a tutorial or be listening to podcasts, which will better my life. That's somebody's um, tradition. It doesn't work for anyone. So all these Kenya and personal projects I did, I had it in my laptop. So when I met Brandon, I had something. You're looking for somebody to help you? You have to have something. Brandon sometimes joke around that, not joke around, he says it all. I think the last time he said it, he said, if I get the pronouncements, I will always amplify their efforts. Because even Brandon, when Brandon decided to help me, I already had 15,000 books. I already done that. He never knew about it. So he just topped it up with the storytelling and then the help he could render to me. So when I met him, I had my work already. He saw that and he said, um, what are you, what's your trajectory and what are you doing here? There's <laughs> I apply for schools. I'm looking forward to go to New York. And then he decided to help me when I got to New York. You know, the Ghana mindset It's like, cool, I'm here. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Um, that is it. Then he still kept me, inviting me to his office. 
uh, get me um, coming along, let's hang out, let's do things. And then basically we started hanging out and then I started working with him and then we became best of friends. And now we are more than, we were like brothers. Um, we, we hang out a lot. Um, every time I'm in New York, sometimes um, he decided to come in here and we hanging out and he's very so supportive of the program I'm doing. He sits on my board as well. So Brandon Stadium, Again, if people don't know, is the famous um, author of the New York Best Time Selling Humans of New York book. He's a photojournalist, one of the more accomplished photojournalists in the world. And Paul met Brandon, and Paul, through his meeting Brandon, got his story amplified. But like he's saying, this is the first time I am actually hearing that he had 15,000 books. <laughs> I mean, 15,000 books is a lot. I have a small library. Like, <laughs> like I tell you, 15,000 books is a lot. Where did you get money to for 15,000 books? <laughs> that was my, uh, my, so before pandemic, I was already collecting books, right, for African photography books only. Then it started people reaching out to people and people donating books to me. And from my bedroom in Brooklyn, then to warehouse, 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 then I got all these books. <laughs> so can you tell us about right now the collection at Bikai? Because we know that there are some quite pioneering works of people there. There are some books that you probably can't find anywhere in the continent. Um, there are some highlighting black photographers globally, some pioneering works of black photographers. I want you to give inside about some of the works that you can find at the kind the library part of it at least i mean we have a book which is 1942 by the then governor of good coast signed by the then governor of good coast these were books they were sending to the abroad to and actually we found out that um in that part of the castle cape coast i think cape coast was fabrication which was brought from uh portugal it's in that book that we found that out Right, so yeah, now we have a lot of books. I honestly can't keep track of it anymore. I'm, now I have a librarian, so I just ignored it and then just let him handle it. Because if I go in there, my finance officer said, and I'm not allowed to buy books anymore. Um, I will go and buy more books. So now what I do is that I buy books with my own money, which I'm trying to stop. Because when they tell me no, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to get it. I'm, I'm going to get it anyway. <laughs> so now we have incredible amounts of collection. So can you tell us about the programs that Decan has already done? I mean, we've already talked about some of the things that's going to happen. But, for example, we know that I attended Ahenie. So can you tell us about some of the works that Decan has already done? Exhibitions, community events, etc. Yeah, so we've had exhibition. Um, we are... About to roll out our full educational programs. We have community events coming out, and then we have also um, um, public programs we are also anticipating to have as well. So these are basically some of the things we've been doing and looking forward to do as well. So can you tell us about the full-time programs? I don't know if you're, if you're able to share, but are the full-time yeah. programs at the kind going to be? Are they going to be degree programs, diploma programs? What stage or nature are they going to be, if you can share some of the details? I mean, basically now, it's just going to be 
um, um, like a cohort program, then next year we see we evolve it to something else. But now it will be just a cohort program for now. And then later on we evolve to something. And what would it be focused on? So it's in three parts, photography, filmmaking, and writing, and research. And if people want to be part of it, there's going to be an application that is going to come out, yet process. There's going, to be there's going to be application next month, which will going to come out. And Paul, I'm wondering, because earlier in your story, we, we, you mentioned how, I mean, you see yourself as African and you're focused on Africa. So now translated to the Deccan uh, context, what, and also the ecosystem approach you have, how do, what's the plan in terms of going beyond Ghana? Yeah, yeah, we already partnered with about um, so far seven institutions across Africa um, to um, support them and to share because they can cannot or, or do all the work. So what we can do is support them, collaborate with them, and share what we have with them as well. So basically, that is some of the things we're doing. And then also we look forward to having events here in 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 Ghana, which is more accessible to Africans as well. And our programs is not just selected and supporting of only Ghana, but it's going to be a program for everyone in, our, in the continent. Okay. So when you're saying those collaborations with the institution, that's, that's mainly on the education side. Yes, education side and also pro education side and also programming and initiatives, right? Okay. Okay. Great. And I also saw, of course, um, in terms of the diaspora, I think you're also showcasing works coming from the diaspora. So maybe also there you can elaborate a bit on the role that diasporans play in the development of the both the art side and then also the education side and creating creative leaders on the continent. Yeah, so in December, we're going to have one of our biggest exhibitions as well here. And this will be for Africans and diaspora. Right. We want because, again, Ghana in December is the only place on Earth where African-Americans and Africans meet. The progress of the can over the past few months has been exciting. Now, I want to know about the partnerships we have and some of the uh, I mean, the current partnerships. We don't have to make any new excitement. You were talking about Canon um, coming to have this KISS program. What other partnerships are making the can try because I know one of the things that you have done is that you've done a lot of stakeholder engagements both locally and abroad and you are bringing a lot of stakeholders um, to make that possible and, and again I'm not talking about the African institutions I'm talking about maybe um, organizations that are giving training funding etc that are coming on board to make the can's um, vision a reality yeah now our body say we have very strong partners backing us in various areas um I'm going to tell you a few and then so right now we have Yale University with us we have University of Pennsylvania with us uh, University of Delaware we had Boston University with us currently we have my former school ICP and we have various programs and Canon we have Canon with us we have Peak Design with us and others are in the works so when they are ready for design and everything I'll let you know that's great can you, can you share uh, what the plan is with these institutions, especially the education institution? Because I, I think it's really around, you know, training curriculum. What's the plan with these institutions? Most of them have to do with exchange programming, 
most of them might have to do with capacity building. For example, I'll be honest with you, Batson College, right, is the leading entrepreneurship institution in, in US, and they are helping us build entrepreneurship for creatives in Africa. Ecosystem thinking, definitely. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I mean, when you, when you go on your website, I mean, your mission states educating the next generation of Africa's creative leaders to transform Africa. So I find it very interesting because it's, I think it clearly already shows the scope of the vision. But looking at what you, like of your journey within the six years, maybe if you look out into the future, what is it that you see that is possible, let's say, over the next 20, 30 years by, of course, yourself, but then also by people that are trained, like by these creative African leaders. So you see, that's the point, right? In Africa, one of our biggest problems is leaders and leadership, right? So if you can, if you could train leaders, ethical leaders, because with critical thinking, emotional intelligence and all that, think about it. Those leaders can transform a lot of people in Africa continent. So in the next five years, you train 10 people, 10 people train 20 people, the ripple effect goes on and on and on. No, so for example, the head of GTV Ghana, GTV, right? He's a leader, he's a creating leader. The head of TV3, the head of, you know, a production company, even as small as a photographer is a leader. Well, if you well train the person to think critically and see the person as a leader, it can transform Africa. I was going to say that when I hear you speak, right, I remember Patrick O'Wear and the vision that he had for Ashesu University. I knew that. <laughs> yeah. Um, because, I mean, Ashesu University, you were basically, if you allow me to say, Ashesu for creatives, because Ashesu University is really based on entrepreneurship, but they take a very ethical approach. And now they are doing all of this. They are like African problem solving with leadership and ethical uh, ethics. But you are also creative problem solving, but at the core of it is leadership and ethics. Because like you said, you can't solve the African problem without solving the ethics and leadership. It is so ingrained in it. So have you thought about possibilities with people like Ashesi University? Because I, I just think it's like a match made in heaven. My, my board chair was the board chair for Asashi for now of years, so, <laughs> so you should know where we could. Um, and Patrick is somebody I admire a lot, and Patrick is somebody I look up to. And uh, yeah, so what he's built is incredible. So yes, um, we pick inspiration from them. Um, we, we look up to them a lot in the things they will be able to accomplish in the Adodi Libra Arts University in Ghana. And we... What if, you know, Rhode Island and uh, Brown University? Yes, yeah. They are best friends, right? So there's a lot of what if. I know, right? Yeah. I know. No comments. Because I was actually coming to that. <laughs> I was coming to that. I was coming to the part of now that it's an institution, now that we are trying to really hone on transforming education, are we thinking about the possibilities? Again, I don't know if this is also <laughs> in the works and you don't want to share, but are you thinking about possibilities of um, licensing, like it's a university or some institution, like how are people coming in, getting certification that are recognized locally or internationally, etc. So again, you see, when I when I prompt, I I put it all out there that I want to build the right? I took a step back and said, I want to work with the community. 
to develop what they need, not what I think they need. That's the biggest problem. People go ahead and say, oh, I'm from U.S. I went to the best school in U.S., right? You need us as university. You need this. You need that. But the community might say, no, we don't. We actually need maybe a place to hang out. We actually need a place with resources. So for me, where I am, I'm not jumping the gun, right? I don't want to jump the gun. I'm taking the baby steps. I'm listening. I'm working with people. I'm listening and I'm building project proposal. I'm building strategies. So that will determine where we go. Because again, the biggest problem, which why a lot of institutions cannot be relevant today, is because one person went to American school, came back, I want to build an American school. But American system is different from here. Patrick has made it work. Patrick went to Swarthmore, you know, made it work. But for me, my building up is listening and figuring out what the core is that people need in God and in Africa. Okay. So maybe a step back just for me to understand at what time did the idea of Deacon form? At what stage were you when you had the idea for Deacon? Because you mentioned when you met Brandon, you had already a lot of ideas thought out. So when did that kind of form? I think when I was in school, when I was going through so much racism and discrimination, right? I thought that, you know, as me being a selfless person, it's like, no Ghanaian should go through this thing here. What if I can build my own school here in Ghana? Nobody has to come here. And even with that, people think that I'm building a pipeline for American school. No, never. What pipeline? Mm -hmm. I'm building a one-stop place so that nobody gets to go there. You know, so that is when the idea actually started. Okay, interesting. So, because I was wondering, because of how you described that you're listening into the community. So now that that idea formed, of course, you had the experience over there. So you can see, of course, you got some technical expertise and everything, but you saw some of the downsides and you also probably wanted to have that African curriculum that you're already building. But now coming back after that idea has formed, so what were kind of maybe initial feedback or responses or insights you gained from the community already at an earlier stage that maybe you did not would not have anticipated beforehand yeah of course you know because when we, i came back right i also had the uh, perception of you know building my the seminar school but basically right some people don't need it all some people just want a gallery the gallery was not part of my initial plan but listening to people i found out that photographers don't have a place to exhibit you can't, as a photographer, uh, you, you can't go photo, uh, exhibit your work at Gallery 1957. It's not meant for you. And it's not accessible to the daily, everyday person. And there's walls and bridges to get there. So people wanted a place. So that is where we, I, I came up with that gallery. And the gallery is a non-profit. We don't need to make profits. <laughs> we just need to survive and be for the community. And I'm not in a hurry to exhibit any work commercially. Right, I choose to as a bit of work, which is important. That's all people need and want. Already, what do you think is some of the impact that Decan in this? I think almost a year or some months um, after its opening has achieved, or what is it doing in the community? What are some of the stories of success that you are hearing from the community of the presence of Decan doing? I personally know a lot of people who have gone to the kind to read books for research 
that they probably would not get because those books were just not accessible. Can you share more light on that? I mean, you could ask a lot of photographers and people who use the space, who are even non-photographers, right? And the space itself, I, de I designed the space, right? It was an old building. I wanted that home feel. And people come here and work, free internet. People come here and sit and do everything, right? It's not just meant for photographers only. You can come with your laptop and you can work all day. So that is the part of the community and which was never there. You know, we've been, we have 17 requests of people wanting to use the space for events and it's free. We don't charge anybody. It's free for everybody to come and have events as long as the space and the slot is available. You can come and have your event and just go according to our terms and, and conditions, right? To um, clean the place as you found it, you know? So it's been a place where people just come meet people and other places, you know? So for me, I think that to have the second gentleman of the United States of America come visit you is a huge plus. And it shows that people are watching today. One of the reasons why I was um, late to come uh, to this podcast was that the Czech ambassador just walked in. Czech Republic ambassador just walked in and said, oh, I read about this or that. You know, I want to come talk to you about possibilities and collaborations. I didn't go to him. I don't even know where Czech Republic embassy is. You know, so that shows the impact and the result of what people are appreciating for. American Embassy is one of our closest friends now. <laughs> you know, we've done works with them. I've gone to speak at the American Embassy, you know, and all that. I'm sure today, if we need a visa, they'll give it to us. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. No, so I, I, I want to round up this conversation on a, a futuristic note. Um, you are a man of a lot of visions. You have a very bold vision. Um, now, you have said that you were thinking of this institution as a trainer of trainer platforms. Like, you train people and they go ahead to go and train people. In the next, you, you are still young, in the next, say, 20, 30 years, what would you hope that Dikan would have achieved in the African photography and filmmaking space, even the larger education space? I think I'm looking to build, I'm building a system that does not revolve around me so that I can walk away anytime. Because sometimes the founders become dumber god of themselves. I'm, no, I can't do this for the next 30 years. No, I'm not planning. I want to, I want to retire at some point. So my, my, my mindset from day one is that how do we build a system that is, a, that provide visual education or make visual education accessible on the continent, quality visual education you know, training the next leaders, right? So that is the focus. So if I'm able to build that machine, that provide the tools and the resources, I think that would be my greatest achievement. And also in that mix of it, people could be able to be trained, provided the resources that they could be able to do that. Okay. I have a question to that, maybe a bit technical when, once we went into the futuristic note, but you mentioned before that the gallery is a non-profit. Yes. So now that you're built, talking about the system and the machine you're building, I'm wondering how does it work on the, the educational side? Is that also a non-profit or that is different? Everything, everything on the can is non-profit. We're not here to make money. Everything is non-profit. Workshops are free, totally free. 
And we're looking amazing. We're looking forward to making free for as long as possible. So again, we're looking for sustainability models that can make our core education free. Excellent. We've been speaking for the past hour with the founder and executive director of Dikan. Dikan is an institution for visual education in Africa. They have the Dikan Gallery, which is the biggest collection of photography in the continent. And they have a lot of programs coming. I mean, we have an educational institute coming. We have um, partnership that is going to make photo education and visual education accessible for young children. Just a huge, huge vision of translating one man's vision to become a vision of a lot more photographers, um, filmmakers, etc. And it's been an amazing experience talking to you, Paul Nensing. Thank you very much for coming to the Chain Africa podcast. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to you guys uh, for having me. The Chain Africa podcast is produced by Isaac Abwa and Daniel Merki. It is executive produced by Tim Yastratus. The theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quay and graphic design by Andrew Ayi. This podcast is a production of Nexa Media.